Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. Welcome to today's masterclass on all things crypto. Your host, Ben Robinson, is sitting down with Adrian Tricani, CEO and co-founder of Medico, the leading provider of security-critical infrastructure for financial institutions who are entering the digital asset ecosystem. Adrian is a leading software engineer specialized in high-performance computing and financial engineering, and he's advised banks and hedge funds and associations on distributed ledger technology. So today, you are going to learn about the difference between cryptocurrency, digital currencies, stable coins. You'll hear about the evolution of blockchains, what will happen to commercial banks if we start seeing central bank-issued digital currencies, and more. This is the first in-person interview Ben has done in six months, and it was recorded in Lausanne, where Medico is headquartered. Enjoy the show. Adrian, normally on structural shifts, we don't do a whole lot of sort of bio. We don't cover a lot of, of biographical information, but I think it might be useful in this case. So um, should we start there? How did how did you first enter the crypto space? You know, Bitcoin started in 2008 when the, the first paper was published by this anonymous creator called Satoshi Nakamoto. And then for a few years, it was only the playgrounds of, let's say, libertarians, anarchists, passionate software engineers and cryptographers. But let's say around 2011, a lot of people started getting in, either for speculation purposes or because of a passion for the new technology and innovation. At this time, I was doing my PhD. You know, when you do a PhD, you have a bit of free time. Uh, I don't like to say it, but uh, you still have some free time to look for things which are not, strictly speaking, related to your PhD research. One of these things was uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, I was uh, completing my, my PhD in mathematical finance with a specialization in high-performance computing. And uh, Bitcoin was not so far away from what I was doing. So reading articles about it, I saw an opportunity to... Uh, speculate or invest. I did not believe in Bitcoin initially, like I think everybody initially I saw a scam or something which I could not really understand. But uh, after months of, let's say, looking around for information and also missing out on uh, incredible growth opportunities, I think Bitcoin tripled while I was just looking at it. I, you know, started investing a little bit and uh, therefore also getting into the details of blockchain. And this is only years later in 2015, I realized uh, that something had to be done uh, to support the growth of the ecosystem. The uh, industry was not ready at all to offer massive services around cryptocurrencies, tokenization, and all of these new use cases that are appearing today. In particular, we were still facing a lot of uh, platforms getting hacked, losing most of their coins, investors like myself losing a lot of money in these uh, horror scenarios. And so I thought that uh, the next step was for the trusted companies on the market, which are the banks, uh, to actually get in and start offering professional services around the management of digital assets. And for that, infrastructure is needed. And Medaco, uh, my company, is specialized in offering such infrastructure. And you always saw that as being the opportunity you would pursue because I can't remember when we first met, but you know, you've been in this space, as you said, for a very long period of time, and you know, you're an expert. And you could have done anything, right? I mean, you could have set up an exchange. You could have been a trader. What, why, why start a custody platform? 
I could have been trading. That's a, that's a good point. You know, I, um, I have this, uh, these several years in the hedge fund industry as an, as an algorithmic trader. And I think cryptocurrencies uh, have these incredible opportunities that you no longer see on any other markets unless you do uh, ultra high performance Utilize frequency trading. And so uh, I think that would have been a possibility. However, at that time, the markets were not sufficiently developed, uh, if you think in terms of uh, market depth, about liquidity, uh, to implement many of the strategies that uh, today would be uh, actually very interesting to study. I missed the, the opportunity at that time. And uh, that was also for me a way to get back to software engineering. I'm originally a software engineer. And uh, discovering Bitcoin when I was doing mathematics and finance uh, allowed me to get back to programming. Uh, and so when I was the victim myself of losing uh, crypto, losing bitcoins, having uh, one of the exchanges I was using that got hacked and then a second exchange that was using getting hacked, I really thought that uh, the opportunity was in building the infrastructure of this new ecosystem. And today, well, I'm not saying that uh, since we founded the company in 2015, uh, we had this uh, exact precise uh, business plan. In fact, we slightly pivoted in 2017, but we always had this ambition to provide institutional uh, solutions for digital assets. Is custody, do you think, the, the biggest missing piece in the institutionalization of, of digital assets? Well, I think custody is, uh, means slightly a different thing with digital assets than it does with uh, tradition, in traditional banking. When we think about custody in traditional banking, it's often about uh, storing pieces of paper yeah. and, and potentially you know, having corporate actions and not doing much about it. Uh, when we say custody in the crypto ecosystem, what we mean is much more than that. It's uh, obviously key management, the management of these what we call secret keys, which secure the assets. But it's all of the interaction with the blockchain or the distributed ledger. It's not just about storing and moving assets. It's also about interacting with smart contracts and corporate actions, managing the whole life cycle of digi digital assets, things which are much more dynamic uh, than what uh, one is usually used to with uh, custody in traditional banking. Many of the listeners will have different levels of understanding of all these different terms. So if you're okay to just maybe just take a step back and just maybe see if we can define and come to a, you know, an understanding of some of these terms, and then we'll delve in a bit, bit more deeply. So can we start with what the difference is between a cryptocurrency and a digital currency or a central bank digital currency? Yes, sure. So I would say that Bitcoin created this new way or pre presented or uh, proposed a new way of dealing with assets. This new way is to, to, to think about a solution where there are less central parties. Uh, you can completely decentralize a payments network, a currency, and make sure that there is no single point of trust. You don't have a CEO, you don't have a chairman or a company or a government that has full control over the asset or its infrastructure. And so Bitcoin was first to provide a very, you know, uh, a scheme that actually works and that has been verified now for almost 10 years. However, what was invented by Satoshi Nakamoto in this context can be reused for many new applications. Some parts of its invention can be reused in different contexts and sometimes almost exclusively everything that is invented can be reused for other assets. When we speak about digital assets, we generally think about taking the blockchain technology that he invented in this context, extracting some parts of it and using it for different asset classes. Let's say secure, securities like equities, fixed income, uh, whatever, bonds or loans, uh, real estate, art, um, uh, Ferraris, you know, anything that you could think uh, could benefit in being tokenized or put in a digital form on the blockchain. Then once you've, done, you've gone through this tokenization process, 
your your asset benefits from the same properties as Bitcoin itself. It can be stored and transferred efficiently. It can be divided in small particles. It can be controlled through what is called a smart contract. So um, sort of automated software, which can uh, simplify the application of uh, contractual clauses. What we've seen recently is that this technology could potentially also be used by more traditional assets like currencies. Uh, we've seen this big trend of central banks speaking about creating not just uh, physical cash, but uh, getting into digital cash, or what is called today a CBDC, a central bank issued digital currency. I'm not saying here that they would use exactly the same principles as Bitcoin. I think that um, the Bitcoin blockchain or the Bitcoin technology would not be adapted for that. It would not scale enough. It would be too open or too transparent in different ways. But the principle behind it that you can store and transfer a currency peer to peer from person to person with no intermediary is something that we see today indeed central banks are moving to. Because at the moment I can pay you in Swiss francs. I can make an online transaction. It's digital, right? So just again, what, what would be the difference then between just a digitally exchanged Swiss franc and a digital Swiss, Swiss franc? Well, think about the difference today between cash and, and a bank, uh, something that you hold on your bank account. When you have cash, it's a, it's a guarantee by the central bank that you will have some purchasing power tomorrow. So yeah. if you have this banknote in your wallet, then you know that tomorrow you should still be able to buy your bread in the morning uh, with this banknote. Because it's backed directly by the central bank, this claim, this promise is made by the central bank itself. Any, any other entity in between, an intermediary, I don't know, defaulting, going bankrupt, could not break this promise by the central bank. I'm not saying that this is perfect. Of course, the central bank, we've seen many examples where they hyperinflate the currency and potentially, even though it doesn't go bankrupt, you still lose all purchasing power that you're supposed to have when you start uh, having packs of banknotes that are worth nothing and that are good to, to light a fire, for instance. But you know, this is still a claim that is direct between the consumer and the central bank. Now, if you think about banking money, that's very different. In fact, when you have money on your bank account, this is not a promise by the central bank. This is a promise by this intermediary that is your commercial bank. If this commercial bank goes bankrupt, if it wants to apply special fees on every transaction, any model, any business model or risk that this bank is facing, potentially you're going to be subject to it. It's not a direct claim or a direct connection between you and the central bank. So this whole chain of intermediaries, which sometimes is much more than just one commercial bank, it can be multiple commercial banks, it can be payment processors, so it can be um, you know, custodians in between. This whole chain could be completely reduced to a direct link similar to what you have with the cash, but in a digital form. And so the idea of this CBDC, this central bank issued digital currency, is that you can have an equivalent direct link between you and the central bank, but it is now digital rather than physical. And you can use it to process transfers on the internet as efficiently as you would uh, with Bitcoin, probably much more efficiently than you would with uh, your bank transfers where sometimes you cannot transfer during the night or off business hours. Uh, sometimes you cannot transfer outside of uh, your country or it takes multiple days. It can be very expensive depending on where you send the money. With the CBDC, the promise is that it would be relatively similar to Bitcoin. Uh, you could send this money anywhere, anytime, frictions would be minimal, and you would have the guarantee that even if uh, there is a complete collapse on the financial industry, as long as the central bank is relatively stable, your purchasing power should remain the same. In the event that we do see central bank issued digital currencies, 
what becomes the role then of, of commercial banks? Well, I think it, it may change dramatically. I don't think uh, banks will disappear. In fact, you know, uh, some people expected that uh, post offices would disappear when the internet became, uh, uh, yeah. started to, to, to get adoption. This is not what happened. In fact, post office, Swiss Post in Switzerland is larger than ever. They just had to restructure uh, to find new business models, new uh, opportunities. And uh, we see that what they used to do may have changed slightly, but it's still relevant. I think the same is going to be true for cryptocurrencies or central bank issued digital currencies. I believe that banks will still be relevant. If you think about it, even today with cash, you have the ability to store cash under your mattress. Um, now, do you do so when the amount is relatively large? Let's say if you, do, if you store more than a couple of thousand, are you going to put that under your mattress or are you going to put that in a vault somewhere and potentially with a bank? You probably will do that with a bank, even though you don't have to. It's just an option. At some point, you realize that you prefer paying a professional third party that knows what it's doing, has all of the measures, the infrastructure, the processes, than doing it by yourself, saving a few hundred bucks per year, but potentially being fully compromised. And I think the same thing is going to happen with digital assets. Even if you have the option to work with the central bank directly, it will be a very practical option to have for small amounts, you know, fast transactions, to, do, to not be fully dependent and reliant on the commercial banks and, and payment processes. But in general, when you want to have to work with a trusted third party that removes some part of your fees and your anxieties, and you will get back to working with a bank. And this is pretty much our assumption also with Medaco. You know, we could see a future where banks completely disappear. In fact, we could go one step further and think about a situation where even central banks disappear and are replaced by Bitcoin, uh, Libra, which in a way is a central bank, Ethereum, etc. And where commercial banks simply are no longer relevant. I think that's not going to be the case. And our hypothesis at, at Medaco is that most investors in these cryptocurrencies and digital assets will still want to work with a trusted partner that knows what they're doing, that advises, advises them, and for that, infrastructure will be needed. Do you, do you foresee that everything will go digital or crypto, and therefore they just have to find a new role within the new sort of decentralized financial world, or that their role will be a little bit to sort of bridge between the old and the new? Well, I think the transition is going to be very long, first of all. So uh, even though we speak about tokenization as being a hot topic today, uh, I think tokenization is going to take years to become a new standard. And that is going to take even more years until the legacy approach is completely replaced by tokenization. Now, whether it's going to be fully replaced at some point, I wouldn't be surprised because if you think about it, uh, everything is digital today, except monetary considerations, you know, everything can be digitalized, uh, information, communication, you, you no longer send telegrams, right? You use the telegram application, which is a messaging app, you use WhatsApp, you use Facebook, storing pictures, you use to print them while well, you no longer print them, you keep them in a digital form. So uh, what's missing today is the notion of money or value of equities, which is partially digitalized, but it's still in a very centralized ecosystem, which doesn't give you as an investor direct control over what you own. So I wouldn't be surprised that in the future we start seeing uh, fine art, Picasso paintings and fairies being tokenized, that uh, you as an investor can finally invest in, uh, in, uh, in real estate, even if you're not a billionaire, that you can invest in Ferraris, but of course millions of, fer millions of Ferraris, so very tiny particles of Ferraris, through tokenization, even if you're not a billionaire, and that you can start diversifying your portfolio in many different classes of assets that today you don't have access to. 
one more question on the role of banks. So what about things like issuance? Do you, I mean, do you, do you think that they just become custodians or do you think they keep some of their historical roles in, in, in for example, issuing new securities? And Well, I think they will keep this role. However, they'll be facing more and more competitors coming from the IT. Uh, so security firms, IT firms, or you know some of the big techs today, the Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, Microsoft of this world. If you think about this, it's already the case that Apple is uh, getting very strong in payment. Alipay, obviously, and many of these other protocols are gaining traction to a point that you can ask whether banks and payment processors are going to remain relevant in this field. So I think, yes, banks are going to keep this role and are probably going to be natural service providers in this, uh, in this field. However, they'll start facing competitors that they don't see today on the market. A big part of the reason they are still so strong in this market is because they're protected by regulations. If you think about a world where some of the regulations adjust to this new digitalized ecosystem, decentralization, uh, I wouldn't be surprised that uh, new competitors that, had that would never have considered getting a banking license due to the costs and, and the you know, frictions could suddenly become relevant and capable of operating a regulated business in this field. So it seems that a lot of the promise of digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, central bank issued digital currencies is about democratization, right? So about making everything to do with finance cheaper, easier to access, having less friction. So is that where you see the benefit? Did you, did you see that finance becomes open to everyone because you don't need a bank account, you can diversify your assets with, you know, with very small holdings? Or do you think it's something bigger? So the reason I ask that is because on the way here, I reread the classic um, article by Chris Dixon, right? Why decentralization matters. And for him, it's much more than just democratization. It's about, you know, aligning, you know, or introducing new, better incentives for the for digital commerce. Do you see it as as big as that or do you see it much more? Oh, I see it even bigger than that. Bigger than that. It's much more than finance. It's much more than payments. It actually can have uh, dramatic consequences, uh, in my opinion, in a good sense, but beyond the, this obvious industry that is finance. One example is governments today or the way we operate a company. Think, let's start with this simple use case. Today, a company, if you're in Switzerland, you create your company, you say, oh, I'm going to inject 100,000 Swiss francs for the capital. I'm going to be the shareholder of this company. I'm going to be subject to specific laws um, that have been established. I can set up a shareholder agreement. All of these things, if you think about it, uh, they are arbitrary. You know, they, it, it happens that uh, through the history, we've defined that this is the way it should be in a country, and every country will have a different way of operating with companies. But in the end, it's nothing more than a series of contracts. And uh, all of these contracts can be fully digit digitalized on the blockchain. This is exactly what these so-called smart contracts are about. They're not just for tokenizing things, they're also for digitalizing companies uh, where you can have an algorithmic board of directors, uh, shareholders that can vote, you can pay dividends to anonymous shareholders that you don't know anything about, except that they hold a part of this abstract company. Uh, you can take decisions and vote as a board of director, not because you all meet in the same room and uh, you have the law of Switzerland backing you, but because you just vote with your token in a smart contract on the chain. So a company is something, if you see it this way and you do the abstraction, that is nothing more than a set of contracts. And uh, I see a future where this simple concept may be completely digitalized and even the government here would become less and less relevant in regulating and controlling how companies operate. That's just a tiny example, but if you push this further, you can start thinking about many laws that exist today. 
and are enforced by a centralized government. You know, we have a centralized government. We speak about democracy, but in the end, there are a bunch of people that vote to elect legislators. Legislators create laws that do not always reflect what the people want. These laws are then enforced by uh, judges and courts that may even interpret the law in a different way than it was written, which was different from what the people actually wanted. And you end up in a system where you have dozens of intermediaries and a very centralized system for politics, for, for, for law, for, for justice. And I can see a future where blockchain and smart contract can be used to create new incentives where many of the laws that we have today become irrelevant because they are already backed by some form of smart contract and the protections that the law offers us today can be enforced by algorithmics, by, by code, by programming. And you no longer need to have armies of lawyers, judges, courts, and politicians creating laws because it's straight into code running on the blockchain. So that's a, I think, very exciting future, obviously very disruptive. I'm not sure regulators will be happy about it because it takes away some of their, some of their power. But I think it also can create a world with much more certainty where when you sign a contract, which in this case is uh, digital on the blockchain, you're not fearing that uh, law may change in the next two years or that the court may interpret your contract in a different way, that the counterparty in the contract may be uh, dishonest or bad faith. You agree on a contract, you don't ask the lawyers and the judges to agree with you, you just code it in a, in a, in a specific way and you get the two parties of the contract to agree and to let the blockchain execute it with no ambiguity. You mentioned Libra, right? When we think about central bank issued digital currencies, they're decentralized to a point, right? But they're not completely decentralized because you'll still have, you know, I guess one per country, one per nation state. Whereas it seems that Libra is trying to do something which is truly global, right? So do you think that Libra is therefore, you know, better conception of what the best medium of payments could be? or a better form of that? I think the ambition of Libra is very different from the ambition of a central bank. You know, a central bank, by definition, is central. Uh, why would a central bank aim for decentralization when even its name uh, yeah. includes the yeah. word central, you know? Uh, a central bank wants centralization. It wants all of the power to decide on what's best for the economy. Then we can debate whether it actually does what's best for the economy. And I would uh, argue that it does not. But uh, I think uh, there are as many opinions as there are economists on the market. The point is, a central bank is not here to decentralize. It's here to provide a service which is systemic to the economy. I'm pretty sure, although this is obviously uh, a market that is immature today, that any platform that a central bank deploys for central bank issued digital currencies, like a digital Swiss franc, is going to be rather centralized than decentralized. Uh, what it's going to provide as a benefit is that it's probably going to be peer to peer. So it will have the ability to store and transfer these Swiss francs person to person with no intermediary. That's the central bank, of course. Uh, however, I don't expect that they will build and provide an infrastructure which is maintained by dozens or hundreds or thousands or different users or companies. I think this is not necessary for what they aim to do. Uh, however, Libra has a different ambition, which is to provide a neutral platform, which can host then a lot of different initiatives. It could potentially be used by a central bank to issue its coin on the Libra network. It could be used by a private company that wants to issue its coin, whether it's a currency, a stable coin, or whether it's a commodity token or something else on the Libra platform. So I see Libra more as an infrastructure or as really an open platform 
than it is about providing money. Of course, one of the main use cases of the Libra platform is for this consortium of private uh, slash public companies or entities to jointly control and uh, potentially issue a stablecoin. Libra, the Libra Foundation or association is responsible for managing these stable coins uh, for different currencies that they announced. And uh, this can look very much like what a central bank would do. But to me, it's just a specific use case that they could have achieved with this Libra platform. And I wouldn't be surprised in the future, we see hundreds of new use cases like this one on the Libra platform the same way we see so many different applications of smart contracts on Ethereum. Two areas I want to pick up on that. First one is, you, you started to, you've introduced the word or the term stablecoin. What's the difference then between cryptocurrency, digital currencies and stablecoins? So a cryptocurrency, at least if you think about Bitcoin and uh, the ones that get a lot of inspiration from Bitcoin, a cryptocurrency is a fully decentralized currency. And by this, I don't mean just that the blockchain, which is the ledger that stores every transaction and, and wallet and balances, is decentralized. I mean that the currency itself is not controlled by any central party. So who is responsible for creating new Bitcoins on the network, managing the monetary policy of Bitcoin? Well, it's no single person. It's actually the whole network itself that has to agree on the terms of the next Bitcoins to be created in the network. Uh, and so the management of Bitcoin itself is therefore fully decentralized. What it means also is that there is no central party that can decide whether it would make sense to create more Bitcoins today or less Bitcoin today. It's fully algorithmic. This is very different from what the central bank does. If you think about the central bank, it looks at the economy, it looks at uh, the exchange rates of the currency, and uh, based on this, it will decide, well, should we print more Swiss francs or should we print less Swiss francs? This will be a dynamic, politically based in a way, or economics based decision process that defines how many Swiss francs are in circulation. So that's very different. This is how the central bank is capable of uh, uh, keeping this stable, because depending on the, the status of the economy, it can decide to print more or print less so that the purchasing power and the exchange rate with other currencies is relatively stable. With cryptocurrencies, you cannot do that because they are fully decentralized. Nobody controls them, so they cannot adjust to the exchange rate. This is why you see Bitcoin rising so much or Bitcoin crashing so much suddenly. Uh, it is um, not adjusting to the demand of the market. So that's the main difference between a cryptocurrency in the traditional sense and a stablecoin. A stablecoin is generally managed by a central party or has at the least, if it's not managed by a central party, some form of algorithmic pegging to the value of something that is stable in the economy. Let's just also talk a bit about blockchains, right? So the underlying ledger. So do you see that the Bitcoin blockchain will always exist? Or do you think that gradually these, you know, the blockchains will evolve and become you know, more scalable, more composable over time? You know, so is it just the first generation or is it, an, you know, a blockchain that will continue to exist as continued relevance? How do you see sort of the evolution of blockchains? And how many can there be at any one time since, you know, to be secure, it needs a lot of computing power. I think that the two uh, the alternatives that you propose are not necessarily mutually exclusive. If you think okay. about Bitcoin, I agree, it is a first generation blockchain by definition. It's the first one that uh, was launched and uh, that actually survived. Now, it is also true 
that uh, it's not going to be the only one and that it's already outdated uh, from a feature point of view. The feature set of Bitcoin is very limited as compared to many new distributed ledgers and blockchains that exist on the market. At the same time, this is also the main value of Bitcoin. It's its stability. It's not changing every week. It's pretty much the same code and the same algorithm that is running now for more than 10 years. And this is because of this stability that people and investors have so much trust in it. You know that it's not going to break because of a new bug that nobody knew about uh, that was uh, brought during uh, an update or some new feature in implementation. You know that you're facing the same thing as, last, as the last 10 years. So if it were robust until today, there are good chances that it's going to remain robust in the next 10 years. If you think about alternatives like Ethereum, Tezos, and you know, the many other ones that exist on the market, uh, their goal is not exactly the same. It's really to innovate. And they do innovate. In many ways, they do much more than what Bitcoin can do. Uh, but at the same time, it's also a risk because if you're an investor, if you're using that in production, and there is a massive update of the platform, what are going to be the consequences on your code? Could it be that a bug is introduced, a security risk is introduced? You never know really. Uh, and uh, I think this is why, as an investor, you may want to also favor this stability component. And this is also why we see Bitcoin being so dominant on the markets in terms of market capitalization and, and traction. Uh, it's certainly not because it has the most use cases. I think that Bitcoin is uh, pretty much nothing more than a stable deflationary or ultimately deflationary cryptocurrency that is therefore a good investment opportunity. Um, it does doesn't do much more than that today. It can be a great payment protocol, but not much more. Whereas Ethereum uh, provides all of these so-called smart contracts, which can simplify contractual relations between investors. And uh, you can you have infinite degree of flexibility here. You can program any arbitrary software running on the Ethereum platform, which, we, which you cannot do with Bitcoin. So I think that uh, today, the question is more, what do you want to do with these cryptocurrencies? If what you want to do is revolutionize the future, um, replace uh, what I call you know, companies being digitized, you can't do that today with Bitcoin. You have to go with a more modern platform. However, if what you want is you're looking for a form of digital gold, something which has gained trust over the years and that has shown to be something that is attractive, that people like to hold and that tends to keep its value to some degree, uh, then I would prefer investing in Bitcoin for that. It's really its main value proposition. If we assume that the end state or, or, or future states where we have like decentralized apps, decentralized companies, uh, or, or, or maybe you know digital autonomous companies, decentralized apps, decentralized finance, so we have you know a tendency to have a very large number of companies and apps and so on. That the opposite of centralization. Underneath it, we still have the 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 force for centralization of the blockchains themselves, right? Or, or not? And and because I suppose the, sub the subsequent question is, you know. How many blockchains do you think we'll end up having? And well, I mean, I mean you know, the, permi the permissionless ones. It, it always depends uh, what you call centralization. You're saying that we have decentralization uh, that is the blockchain is a bit like saying it's centralized because we're all on the same planet. You know, we all live on planet Earth. Uh, of course, at some point, you have a centralized standard, if I could say, or a relatively standardized, uh, um, um, relatively central standard. Um, now, it doesn't mean that this standard is centralized itself. If you think about Bitcoin, sure, it's very centralized standards. So the specification of how Bitcoin works 
is now agreed over by thousands of users, thousands of companies. However, the Bitcoin network is maintained by these thousands of users. So if you want to change anything, you can't do it by yourself. You have to convince thousands of other users. I think that this is actually a very strong value. This is the network effect. Yeah. The network is more valuable as, uh, as you start drawing its user base, the network that it can reach. Would you use Bitcoin if you knew that only a couple of people on planet Earth would agree that you send them to them and that they, I don't know, they sell a piece of bread to you? No. You like having Bitcoin because you know that there are millions of people that hold some. Potentially, you can go in a, in a supermarket and buy a, buy a piece of bread with it. Uh, maybe not everywhere, but this is starting to happen. And um, clearly, Bitcoin has value. You can exchange it for Swiss franc or something else quite easily. Now, having the fragmentation with uh, dozens of blockchains actually, in a way, hurts the system. It's, yeah. it's great in the sense that it provides, uh, you know, it, it creates competition between these initiatives and therefore through competition, they have to improve to keep their momentum, keep their, uh, domin their dominance position. However, at the same time, when you want to do something concrete, let's say you're a bank and you want to create a new asset on the blockchain, you immediately start asking yourself, where should I do that? On Bitcoin, on Ethereum, on Tezos, uh, on Cardano, on any of these other you know, hundreds of blockchains. And therefore, whichever, whichever decision you take, is going to be is going to make some people happy and some people unhappy because not everybody agrees on the same standard. So it's always this trade-off between um, competition is a good thing, but if you have too much competition and no standards, then it it uh, limits the innovation also. And I think at this stage we are at the beginning of this industry where you still have. Uh, uh, a lot of competition, healthy competition in a way. Um, you have a reasonable amount of uh, different ledgers that are all credible, but you have still a very strong dominance with Ethereum for smart contracts and Bitcoin for cryptocurrency. In the current internet era, there's a sort of tendency for, for heavy concentration at the app level. Um, whereas I think the opposite is true in, in the crypto world, which is the concentrations at the protocol level, right? If the concentration is at the protocol level, is the hardest thing then getting those protocols to scale? And, and what's because you remember the, you're the first person I ever had talking about sharding, right? So, mm -hmm. can you talk about some of the ways in which these protocols are starting, or, or the or the mechanisms that people introduce to try to get this whole infrastructure to scale better and, and use less yeah, less electricity? So, well, I think that's that's multiple different issues. So, the first one is uh, I don't know if it's a theorem, but it's at least a very strong observation. It is uh, you have this triangle why, that you can't get all everything at the same time. You can't get decentralization security and scalability at the same time. If you want two of them, you're going to have to sacrifice part of the third one. So you could, for instance, like Bitcoin, have uh, pretty good security, pretty good decentralization, but then the scalability is not so good. Or you could say, well, I'm going to centralize, which is what we have today. You know, if you think before Bitcoin, we have these very centralized payment processors like Visa, MasterCard. And you can say, what matters for me is security and scalability. So I want to be able to process thousands of transactions. However, then in this case, it's not going to be so decentralized. It's going to be very centralized, actually. And having these three properties at the same time is very difficult. So when we speak about uh, ways of scaling the blockchain, sure, we can do much better than what we do today, but it, we have to to be aware that this cannot, this cannot be infinite. We, we cannot reach uh, hundreds of thousands of transactions per second or millions of transactions per second, keeping the same level of security and decentralization. You will have to kind of start you know, sacrificing some of these properties. Now, uh, what we see, see happening is uh, the capability to indeed use uh, sharding techniques where 
potentially part of the network validates some kind of transactions and the rest of the network validates other kinds of transactions. And therefore, because you don't have every single computer of the network validating every single transaction, then you can maybe double it or triple it depending on how you shard, how you allocate these subset of operations to each of these uh, maintainers. Now, I don't want to get into the details, but this is typically one sacrifice because now rather than having all of the users checking everything, you only have part of the users checking some things. One could argue that in many cases this is sufficient, and I think it may be the case that it's sufficient in uh, for many applications, but by definition it's obviously less secure than everybody looking at everything. So this is one of these trade-offs. Another way of scaling is uh, to not have every transaction written on the blockchain. Uh, of course, um, when Bitcoin started, it was the assumption that uh, you know everybody could write a, a transaction on the blockchain, or at least some people believed it. I don't think Satoshi Nakamoto himself believed that. He he wrote something in one of his uh, I think messages or maybe in the white paper that suggested he was aware that this would not scale forever. But uh, clearly, it was quick, it was realized at some point that uh, uh, you could not scale what you write on the chain forever. You would have to, uh, at some point, decide to write transactions outside of the chain. And so uh, what we see today as a possible way to scale is to uh, say that small transactions, fast transactions with uh, uh, that, that require really high frequency, but maybe do not need to be secure to a point where you write everything on the chain. They could be processed more centrally between two parties. Um, using cryptography, so in a way it would still be relatively secure, no way for uh, an intermediary to steal the funds or to break the chain, uh, but you would only write the settling transaction, the clearing, clearing transaction on the chain after you have reached a point where the risk that you have off-chain is maybe too high for your tolerance. Is, is that how you see permissioned and permissionless blockchains coexisting? So just again for the benefit of our, of our listeners, can you define what the differences between permissioned and permissionless? Yeah, permissionless ledger is like Bitcoin. It's a ledger that uh, can be used and uh, maintained by any user. If you have an internet connection, not only can you use Bitcoin, but you can also maintain it. You can Bitcoin what is called a miner, so somebody that's going to protect the network actively. Uh, and you don't have to ask anybody. You don't have to ask the government. You don't have to ask your bank. Uh, you can just participate in its maintenance and use it however you wish, like any other user in the, on the system without any permission. That's what we call a permissionless ledger. Now, of course, not everybody is happy with this solution. If you think about banks, for instance, they don't like the idea very much that uh, they would uh, start issuing securities and have to uh, have uh, processes to apply compliance uh, logic on something which is in some way out of their control. So uh, in the last five years, or maybe a bit more than that, several initiatives have uh, been uh, launched to create things that look very much like Bitcoin or Ethereum, but that are not controlled by any internet user. They are controlled by a subset of pre-approved users. Uh, that could be a consortium of banks, for instance, where uh, you take a consortium of 10 banks and uh, each of the 10 banks knows which are the other banks of this consortium and can verify, therefore, that only these 10 banks are maintaining and protecting this network and potentially accessing its information. So this is a, permission, a permissions uh, ledger. It's a ledger that is not accessible by anybody. And so you could see a situation where a consortium of companies or banks might do supply chain finance, so for example, in a permission blockchain, and then write the ultimate, you know, the end, um, the resulting transactions into a public 
of, of permissionless blockchain. It could be the case. Uh, I think uh, we've seen quite a few uh, projects going that way, where uh, permission ledger is bit used a bit like uh, intranet. You know, like before the internet, we had uh, yeah. more intranets, so it's, it's used a bit more in private context. And when you want to settle or when you want to get back to a more public standards, you would uh, operate on a public chain. I'm not a big uh, believer in permission ledgers, to be honest. Uh, I think that uh, although they can bring some, uh, in some use cases, they have a strong value proposition. In general, they are they are not so much more than a very secure database. Yeah. Um, you, know, you, you could, in fact, implement uh, a permission ledger uh, with some SQL database with additional layers on top of it, checking the integrity of data and making sure that uh, multiple parties have uh, ways to audit the content. Um, so I sometimes uh, am a bit doubtful that this can establish itself as the new standard for digital currency management. However, in some cases, we've seen interesting applications, in particular when you have uh, natural consortiums uh, for specific applications. If you look at a specific supply chain, it may be that indeed you don't need to open up to the rest of the network. You just want these specific dozens or hundreds of parties to be involved. And why would you then go on a public chain where you have to pay fees, uh, where everything is public and therefore you have uh, privacy leaks, um, uh, where you're not in control, so it's harder to apply you know, your governance rule uh, logic on top of it. In these cases, indeed, using a permission ledger is an interesting alternative. We've talked about how blockchains be can become more scalable. Another sort of a you know, objection that people raise is that, you know, they're so wasteful in terms of, you know, because because trust is is achieved through math mathematics and mathematics is done via computation, they use an awful lot of electricity, right? So there are ways, uh, proof of stake and so on, that, that are emerging where we don't necessarily have to burn a whole load of electricity to, to, to create the trust, right? So do, do you mind just talking about some of those emerging techniques? Yeah, sure. But before I speak about these emerging techniques, uh, maybe there is a philosophical question, which is, uh, do we actually care? If you think about this, uh, governments use a lot of electricity too. And we're not arguing that we should remove all governments on planet Earth just <laughs> because they turn on the light when they get to, to work. Yeah. Uh, banks use a lot of electricity. Gold mines, uh, if, when you're mining gold, you use a lot of electricity. In fact... And there's also the hope that uh, we can put electricity on renewable rails. Uh, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think we're getting there. In the future, we may have actually a very efficient way for, uh, if you think about some of these uh, renewable energy uh, factories or however they do it, that uh, don't know exactly how to store the electricity. They don't want to sell electricity at the wrong time during the day. Well, they could actually use this electricity to mine Bitcoin when it's not profitable to uh, sell it on the markets, on the grids, uh, and uh, rebuy electricity later. So I think... We should not see energy consumption as uh, the devil, you know, it's part of any successful industry. And I would tend to argue that uh, securing value, which is probably the, 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 the most important thing uh, today uh, in, a, in a globalized uh, uh, sort of free market sort of uh, uh, economy uh, system, being able to secure wealth, secure value, purchasing power is arguably much more important than many services we pay so much for uh, in terms of electricity. You know, if you ask me, I'm a bit of a libertarian, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite open-minded about this, but if you ask me, if we want to save energy, I'd say maybe fire a third of the government. So, you know, maybe a third of the administrations today is not so necessary. If you think about it, uh, we have all of these laws that are no longer relevant and that needs to be implemented, that needs to be monitored. Let's save energy, you know, fire, a bit, uh, fire some, some state employees, uh, or maybe some banks are no longer so efficient, so we can fire uh, some personnel in the bank. So I know it's a bit harsh to it's a bit hard to say that, but energy consumption is not 
it's not something we should necessarily avoid. We could argue that uh, having the most secure uh, blockchain on the market today, that is Bitcoin, has a price, an electricity price, but this price may be the right price for the service it provides. Now, you're right that there are some new initiatives. Um, it's been quite a few years already that uh, what is called proof of work, proof of work is the main mining algorithm on Bitcoin, which is so energy consuming. Uh, there are new initiatives to replace this proof of work algorithm uh, with uh, more modern or let's say different ways of securing the blockchain. And although I doubt very much that Bitcoin will adjust to it, because uh, Bitcoin, again, the, the main value of Bitcoin is that it doesn't change so much. Uh, we already know that other chains like Ethereum or Tezos have moved or will move uh, to such a new way of securing the blockchain. Now, it's not perfect either. It may be more uh, eco ecological. You may use less electricity, actually significantly less electricity, but it has other security weaknesses that it introduces that we don't know much about. And it's not clear that uh, it's actually as secure and as uh, neutral that a Bitcoin system is. So I think it's good for innovation. But I would not be so convinced that this is the way everything has to go. I think Bitcoin remaining the way it is is actually a very strong value proposition. Because in its in in its essence, if you have, if somebody has a larger stake than somebody else, they have a more say over the blockchain. Is that right? So it's not as you said, it's not as equitable, not as fair. Yeah, but you know, in in a proof of stake model, which is this alternative to proof of work that uses less electricity. If I want to make it simple, uh, the richer you are, the more control you get. So if you're rich in terms of coins on the cryptocurrency, uh, you have a larger control over the network. And the assumption here is that uh, it's very hard for somebody to centralize so much that it has a lot of control of the network by becoming very rich. Whether this assumption is correct, if you look at history and uh, you know the, the billionaires of yesterday that now are worth more than 100 billion or 200 billion, uh, you may wonder if this assumption of uh, relatively decentralized uh, uh, coin distribution is valid. Uh, of course, there are ways to counteract on that. You can create counter incentives for cheaters or abusers of the system, but uh, is it going to be perfect? I think nobody can know for sure until this is uh, concretely implemented. Now, if I want to be honest, proof of work is not perfect either. So this uh, existing Bitcoin protocol that secures with uh, what is called mining, that is uh, heavily ele uh, you know, electricity cons uh, this consumption, uh, it's not perfect either. Uh, there is also a degree of centralization. Reason being that as soon as a company emerges and makes a profitable business around uh, mining, it's going to grow, it's going to hire more people, buy more hardware, and it's going to concentrate a lot of mining around its factory. And what we see today is that China is one of the main miners. It has uh, several of the largest uh, mining factories. Um, and uh, electricity price is one of the key drivers of where you would like to establish such businesses. So countries naturally attract mining, other countries naturally uh, rejects or repulse mining because it's too expensive and not profitable. And uh, even though mining has the is interesting in the sense that in theory, anybody could just turn on its computer or laptop and start contributing and therefore be creating a very decentralized network. In practice, your laptop is so weak or is, is, is so uh, bad in comparison to professional miners that uh, it, it has become unrealistic to compete with professional miners unless you heavily invest in professional hardware. And that means that most people will not do it and therefore centralization also appears. And is that centralization of mining becoming a problem in terms of, does it make the network vulnerable? 
Well, by definition, having excessive centralization always means it makes it more vulnerable. At one point, it becomes really vulnerable, is hard to say. I think we're far from that. And uh, even though it is relatively centralized today, uh, there are, it's still a sort of oligopolistic uh, control. And the interesting property of uh, such protocols is that even if you have a miner that represents, I don't know, 5% of the total mining power, and therefore one could say has 5% of the mining power, he, can do, he cannot do anything by himself. He would need to align himself and have a handshake agreement or, let's say, a contractual agreement with uh, up to 50% of the mining power, so many other parties on the network, to finally reach a point where this is potentially dangerous for the network. What we've seen in the past is that this sort of uh, centralization events can happen. There was uh, multiple times in history, uh, in the history of Bitcoin, where uh, mining was so centralized that uh, the top two or top three miners were almost able to control the network. What we've seen is that naturally, without uh, trying to enforce new rules, uh, change the protocol, uh, the network itself got so afraid by this uh, amount of decentralization that uh, it fragmented by itself. So some of the contributors of these mining pools, you know, these mining companies decided to switch and move to different companies uh, because they didn't want to be potentially parts of an excessive centralization that would hurt the trust and the security of the network and ultimately the value of the, of the coin because of course the value of Bitcoin heavily depends on how much you trust it. So we've, so we've come a long way. So, you know, initially it had this, you know, infamy, if you want to put it like that, of being a place where criminals did business, right? You know, Mount Cox and so on. And then, and then we had the sort of, you know, the, the Bitcoin uh, boom, if, you know, and, you know, I remember Jamie Dimon said that Bitcoin was worse than, you know, the, than tulips. And then it just seems that, you know, as time has gone on, more and more institutions have entered the space. A lot of the, um, you know, the negative reputation has, has disappeared. So I think it's most people recognize that it's not a place where exclusively criminals uh, do business. And um, and it seems like in the very recent past, there have been a number of sort of key milestones, right? So people like um, Paul Tudor Jones writing that letter where he said he was going to invest in Bitcoin. He saw it as a you know, reputable asset. And the OCC saying that banks can now act as custodians and Renaissance Capital now being able to trade futures. So do you, do you think we're reaching some sort of like tipping point where Bitcoin moves from sort of, I don't know, edge case, niche, financial products to something which is which is truly in the mainstream? I think there is no doubt about it. The only thing that's missing is uh, the regula regulatory approval in some countries, actually in many countries, uh, and uh, the ecosystem and the infrastructure to build up so that uh, the banks or the institutions that are moving in this field have the technical capability to do so. But what we see, and you know, our company Medaco is well-placed to know about this market because we, uh, we're in discussion with dozens of banks uh, pretty much everywhere in the world. And we see the demand is uh, very, very strongly increasing. It's generally a demand that is to start building today uh, to be productive or operating in a couple of years. So it's not something that is so responsive, you're speaking about large companies, large banks, or even smaller banks, but that have a lot of other considerations, the regulatory aspects, the risk, the reputation. But clearly the market is moving now. And it's a, it's a given, at least to me, that uh, uh, what we knew about Bitcoin, it was uh, 
five, six years ago, it was the, the preferred currency for the, the dark web Silk Road markets to buy drugs, uh, uh, weapons, and and buy and pay hitmen uh, is uh, is very you know is very far away now. And Bitcoin criminality, of course, is always going to exist the same way that you still use dollars for you know terrorism financing and money laundering or whatever criminal act or Swiss franc or any other traditional currency. Bitcoin is not going to be an exception. Of course, there will be criminal activities with Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is becoming much more of a legit currency. Cryptocurrencies in general are becoming much more legit. And we see it concretely happening with regulators opening up everywhere in the world and uh, reputed uh, banks moving in this field also. Did you ever have any doubts that cryptocurrencies and blockchain would become a mainstream phenomenon? I personally never had doubts about it. Otherwise, I would have probably sold my coins uh, multiple times in the last ten, uh, in the last six or seven years, uh, as they've uh, the market crashed, or which happens regularly. I think this, for me, it was it was clear, and it still is clear. Uh, what I could never have been one hundred percent convinced is that uh, is whether Bitcoin would be the winner or Ethereum or something else. I've also made a lot of uh, wrong bets um, on some of these other currencies that I did not invest in because I thought they would never succeed, uh, and. And actually, those things can be worth more than a billion today. So nobody really knows. Uh, I think Bitcoin is here to stay. And I think it's going to be a very, very strong new asset class on the markets as it becomes more mainstream. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the other uh, smart contract platforms on the market, like Ethereum, are here to stay. They have this uh, very strong network uh, effect today where they've almost established themselves as standards. Uh, so big question has always been which of these cryptocurrencies are going to survive? But I think we're very close to having a concrete answer to that question today. Just want to maybe finish off by talking a bit more about Metaco itself. So you recently raised a 17 million Swiss francs Series A round during in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that would seem to indicate that this space, again, is hot and, and um, becoming mainstream. But can you just talk a bit about why you're different from some of the other companies that provide custodian infrastructure is it do you think it's because you're principally on the side of the if the banks and the, and the financial services companies so yes indeed we we've gone through a series a financing round uh, we raised 17 million uh, the to be fully transparent we started the fundraising before uh, the covid yeah, but so, that's not such a good story <laughs> <is it? laughs> but you know uh, it doesn't change much about the outcome which is yep. that uh, you know raising funds takes uh, more than six months and it was and a larger ra uh, raise than you were initially seeking right oh so, absolutely yeah. you know, we, we aim to raise eight million we ended up with more than 20 million on the table and we settled that uh, at 17 uh, you know because we didn't want uh, to you know get into a of negotiation about new valuations, uh, reducing dilution, etc. Uh, but um, no, it was a very successful round. Uh, to be honest, it was uh, not the easiest period to close such a round. Um, it, it is clear that a lot of uh, venture capital funds on the market uh, stopped any discussions they had, um, not just with us, but with uh, any company on the market, because uh, they had to focus on their existing portfolio of companies that maybe may have been suffering uh, due to uh, because of the period. Uh, I think we're getting back to normal now. Uh, but we've been extremely successful in also the companies that we brought as, as shareholders. You know, Standard Chartered Bank is one of our shareholders. Zürcher Continental Bank, you know, it's, it's massive players in the banking uh, banking sectors. Uh, Standard Chartered is a global custodian. Zürcher Continental Bank is, of course, one of the most reputed banks in Switzerland. Uh, we brought a company called Gizike and Devriant. 
and she's one of the security giants uh, that is uh, uh, supporting central banks every, everywhere in the world, uh, and that is also very much focused uh, on central bank issued digital currencies, which is one of the reasons of the investment in Medaco. Um, so uh, incredible uh, investments and, and opportunities opening up with uh, these different new partners and shareholders. I think as a general uh, comment on the company, we are very special in the sense that uh, we are specialized engineers in cryptocurrencies, in blockchain, in security, uh, and in obviously software engineering. Uh, but we don't focus so much on regulatory or on regulated services. We actually don't want to become a regulated company. We focus on infrastructure, and then we work with regulated partners, which are banks, in making in making sure that they have the most solid uh, and, and, and professional infrastructure uh, to protect their assets, to start tokenization uh, use cases, uh, do anything that is related to, to the blockchain. And so for that, you know, today we have the, the chance of still being very much of a startup. We are agile. Um, we are we can take decisions very, very fast, very um, you know, efficiently, depending on the on the market conditions. Uh, but at the same time, we're backed by extremely solid companies. We have a lot of liquidity, and that gives us all of the opportunities to scale, not just in Switzerland, but in Western Europe, Germany, in Singapore, Southeast Asia, and in North America. Fantastic. Adrian, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit aperture.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.